All right, well, we are continuing this morning in our marriage study. Uh, this is chapter 4, if you're reading along at home. Uh, so we, as Pastor said, we're going to jump around a little bit to uh, accommodate guys that are teaching. But the title of this chapter is The Moment of Weakness. Harvey calls this his defining moment number three. And we'll get into what he is talking about there. But uh, I followed orders, and so there is the wedding picture. It's in black and white to make it look a little bit older. We look a little bit wiser. So you see two things in that picture. One, I married up, and two, I had hair at one point in time. I think it's funny when, I, when the kids look at it and my boys are like, Daddy, you had hair. Yeah, yeah, it happened. It was there. It was a lot longer than that at one point. It's crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it gives me pride to show off that picture because uh, she's put up with me for 18 years now, and uh, that's a minor miracle in itself. Um, but uh, she's just such a large part of my ministry, and uh, it, it's... That's why I'm up here able to talk about it. So I'll stop there before I get emotional. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about this weakness idea that Harvey talks about. Here's the definition that he gives for defining what a weakness is. He calls it an experience of inability that requires dependence upon God. An experience of inability that requires dependence upon God. Now, here's the difficulty in this chapter. This, these are very broad definitions, right? And, and the weaknesses that we experience are diverse. You know, yours is not going to look like mine. Mine's not going to look like yours. They come at different times. They last for different durations. They involve different, different circumstances. And so it's, we're, we're kind of taking this, you know, wide-eyed panoramic view of what weakness is. Uh, but I hope as we go through it, you'll think of specific things in your own life. Um, and, and let, let the word and let what Harvey has to say to you uh, minister to you a little bit. Harvey says we've got weakness in two different ways. And I'm going to show you those to, to kind of kick this off. The first weakness that we have, he says, is what he calls deadly, deadly inability. Um, and and the, the subtitle there I kind of put, or the point underneath it, this is our natural creatureliness. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm an English major, so I'm allowed to make words up like that. Our creatureliness, what, what do I mean by our creatureliness? What I mean is in our natural state. We are creatures, not the creator. Right? We are created beings, and because we are created beings, that means we're finite. It means we cannot know everything, we cannot see everything, and we are twice crippled in that because we're also fallen. So not only are we finite, but we are crippled by our sin natures, and without Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are deserving of wrath. That's how broken we are. So as a result of all those things, we're weak. Our default position is weak. No matter what we think about that, no matter where our heads are in all that, we're weak. And, 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 there's a, and if you've been walking with Christ for a while, you can probably run ahead of me a little bit. And if you don't admit you're weak first, <laughs> you're not going to be able to fully understand what this gospel is all about. But the fact that we are weak means that we are in desperate need of someone stronger than us to save us. Like, we cannot save ourselves. We could team up, you know. We could do kind of an Avengers sort of thing, right? We could all team up and use our greatest abilities, and we would all fall flat. We need someone stronger than us to save us. And if you're in Christ this morning, that's exactly what Jesus did. 
Someone stronger, someone able came in and saved you when you were weak. That's Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead. Dead, not sick, not limping, but dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The good news here is that deadly inability, and this is Harvey's quote, is the connection point for grace. When you realize that you are deadly unable to save yourself, that's when grace shows up. And, 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 and that's the key to the gospel. And why am I starting with the gospel? Because if you got a marriage with no gospel, it's going to be a tough road to hope. That, that this has to be the center point. If you've read Harvey's other book, I use it a lot for premarital counseling. I know Pastor does as well, When Sinners Say I Do. That, that's one of the ways I like the way he lays out that book. And that's kind of the book for the beginning of marriage. This is the book a little bit further along. But he starts with the word. He starts with the gospel and says this is, why we're being, this is why marriage is important. This is how we define marriage. And then he gets into the practical. Let's start with the objective before we get to the other stuff. The second weakness that Harvey mentions is called daily inability. So deadly inability has to do with the state of our souls without Christ. Daily inability, he defines as the areas of limitation and vulnerability that require, require reliance upon God. So this is your day-to-day weakness. Okay? As I get older, I start noticing more and more of that day-to-day weakness. Uh, we are forgetful. We are accident-prone. We are careless. Why? Not because we try to do that. Not because we set out to do that but because we're naturally inclined to be weak that way, right? We get distracted. We fall into these ruts. We do those things. Harvey says this, we are the oversleepers, the overeaters, the bill forgetters, the oh Lord, what's that smell people, okay? <laughs> that, that's life. Yeah, like what is going on, you know, when you come down and, you know, the refrigerator's not running, or you name it, the car doesn't start that morning. These are the daily inabilities that we need God for, that we need to lean on him for grace. Maybe you have knee issues, maybe you have back issues, maybe you have sleep issues, maybe your weakness is emotional and that you can fall into depression. That can be consuming. But once again, there's good news in that, that in our daily weakness, it becomes a conduit for God to pour grace into our lives. It creates opportunities for you and I to glorify the Lord because even when things aren't going exactly right, you're praising the Lord. John Stott said God's power operates best in human weakness, and he gets that straight from the Apostle Paul. That's where it comes from. Now, Harvey's text, if he were preaching a sermon in this chapter, is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'll read it to you. It's there on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul, obviously. He says... Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Now, when you get into the theological world, all anybody wants to talk about is what's the thorn in the flesh. Okay? And that's a fun, interesting pursuit, but that doesn't do much for us this morning in terms of applying this to our own lives. Suggestions throughout that conversation include a sickness. Some people think it's persecution, a physical ailment that might have involved his, his eyesight, or maybe it's an individual that continued to torment him. What, whatever the thorn was, and we can't know for sure, ask Paul when you get to the kingdom, it, it was a substantial affliction in Paul's life. Here's how we know that. He mentions it. I, I mean, when you read Paul's letters, I mean, th- think about it. This is a guy we've been studying in the book of Acts. He's getting stoned. He's getting thrown in prison. He's getting beaten. And he never says, hey, pray for my sickness. Pray for my sore back from all these beatings. I'm t-. He, never, he never offers personal things. But here, this is a big enough deal where he says, listen, there's a thorn in my flesh. And he says, I've asked the Lord to, to take it away from me. He won't do it. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to keep doing that. The fact that it's here shows how big a deal it is. Okay? Paul rarely mentions personal maladies in his letters. And yet, this is substantial enough to be shared in inspired scripture. We should pay attention to that. But what's the other good thing we read in this passage? Paul's right th- theology shines through in his perspective on his thorn. Who's the thorn giver in verse 7? And you got to be careful when you read verse 7 because we're tempted to say, oh, Satan gave him that thorn. That's not what he's saying. It is a messenger of Satan, but Satan did not give him that thorn. Let's look closer at that verse. What's the purpose of the thorn? To keep Paul from doing what? Exalting himself. Is Satan in the business of stopping us from exalting ourselves? He would much rather us exalt ourselves. He, he loves that idea. Make ourselves God. Make ourselves self-sufficient. So this thorn is delivered for the purpose of humbling Paul, of not exalting him. And so it is not Satan. The sender isn't Satan. He wants men to exalt himself. The sender is God. Who does Satan work for? <laughs> he is God's devil. And I, so before I move on, let's think on the sovereignty of God. Paul uses the devil to produce godliness in Paul. That's how powerful our God is. This means that Paul's thorn is a, what I'll call a customized affliction. <laughs> that, that's the thing. Is, you know, that's why, what I mean when I say we're going to shoot it with a shotgun blast, but I hope you're, when you apply it to your own lives, you're looking at specifics. Because all of our trials are customized trials. They're fit for us. They're fit for our benefit if you're in Christ. And and it's fit to display our own weakness and our necessary dependence on Christ. What did this thorn do to Paul? It made him desperately weak, which is exactly the state he needs to be in for God to work in him. We got to get ourselves out of the way half the time (laughs) to get God to work. We are a bit of a stumbling block for ourselves. So I would just say, before we get into the marriage stuff, think about that the next time it feels like your marriage is under attack. Think about that the next time that other difficulty arises one more time. That maybe there's a process going on here in which you are being made weak so that you will depend on the only one that can give you the truth and the answers. Let's look at a few. And Again, I'm, I'm throwing out some general things here. But some potential thorns that pop up in our marriages. <clears throat> the first one I thought of was a, a serious illness of a spouse. We've got some of this going on in our family right now. 
You know, when, that, when the cancer diagnosis comes in for someone who's 40 years old, that's a difficult thing. That puts a strain on a marriage. I haven't experienced that personally, but I've been around people that have experienced that. And <clears throat> if we're not careful, that kind of news can divide. That kind of news can bring the stress into a marriage that makes it crumble. Perhaps it's the diagnosis of a child. That, that is a difficult thing, whether that's a, a serious disease. Uh, my son's in here today. And uh, I'll tell you, we got the diagnosis for him, for his autism. You know, there's, <laughs> you have these certain preconceptions of what life is going to look like and what your uh, kids are going to do, especially when you're two college athletes. <laughs> and uh, sometimes the Lord has other plans. And in the moment, it's, I don't understand. Did we do something wrong? What's going on? But as the years go by, that's been a tremendous blessing. Like, that's, that's sanctification. Um, there's an innocence. There's a, there's a love that he has that other kids don't have that we get to experience. But that potentially could have been a thorn. If we're not depending on God in that moment, that could be a thorn. Maybe it's financial struggles. And financial struggles can happen, I think, intentionally, unintentionally, there's a lot that goes on there, right? Uh, again, personal story. Uh, we were two Christian school teachers for a lot of years. <laughs> we weren't intentionally poor. That's just how it was. <laughs> I, you know, uh, it's just what it was. And, and so there is a tendency when, okay, well, our, our salary is this. We can't give our kids this, this, and this. Other families can, and we start to feel inadequate. We start to feel, is this what we need to be doing? Is this our, really our calling? Is this, should, we, should we go make more money? Should I find a job that really isn't my calling because the salary's a little bit higher? You know, those kinds of things come in. And financial struggles, let's be honest, that's a stress. That's a stress in our marriages. Maybe it's past choices. I mean, I, when we do our premarital counseling, when we talk to couples, uh, we always relate that the hardest year of our marriage was the first year. And I think a lot of it was because I was, I was such a new Christian at the time that I was bringing a lot of baggage with me. And I had a lot of baggage anyway. Like I had a whole closet full of stuff uh, that I was bringing with me from my childhood. And to overcome the selfishness, to overcome the past choices, those kinds of things, um, it's difficult. And if we weren't committed to persevering, if we weren't committed to following Christ and all that, why would we do it? And then finally, maybe it's, maybe it's something to do with children. I put difficult children up there. That could mean a lot of different things. But I would just say this, that uh, I think one of the big mistakes in modern marriage and that I see is that children become the absolute focal point of the marriage. And, and not that you shouldn't love your children, not that you shouldn't pour into your children, not that you shouldn't give your children all kinds of time and commitment. But if your children take precedent over your spouse, then your marriage will suffer. 
And we're not there yet, but when they leave the house, (laughs) if it was all about the kids, what do you have left? And we've all heard those stories where the kids leave the house and then all of a sudden the marriage breaks up and you're going, how could you break? It's been 30 years. It's been, you know, that's what happens because the priorities are off. Your number one neighbor as a Christian is your spouse. That is who you must love and forgive more than anyone else. That's, it starts there. If you can't do that, good luck doing that out in the world. And, and there are many more thorns. Don't have time to go through all of them. Many of us in this room have experienced them at one time or another. Here's Harvey's advice. He says, whatever it is, don't sanitize it. Paul wasn't afraid to recognize his thorn as a messenger from the evil one, but Paul saw that God had a good and glorious purpose behind the pain. Make sure we are confronting those things and talking about those things in our marriages. He continues, thorns produce weakness, and thorn-constructed weakness creates the fruit necessary for marriages to go the distance. It's just like anything else. If it's worth doing, it's going to be difficult, and those things make you tougher. Those things make you stronger. Again, back to the idea of the thorns. They're not random. Thorns are never random in a sovereign universe. Number one, they are, they are highly personalized. Again, if you are in Christ and, and God has your goodness in mind, and he says he does, then those trials are brought into your life for a purpose. They are impactful for both spouses. If one spouse is going through something that the other one isn't, it still impacts both. Why? Because we're one flesh. We're not just roommates. It would affect us if we were roommates, but we're more than roommates. We're one flesh, so we feel the, the pain from one another. Hey, here's a silly example. When I was a kid, one of my favorite cartoons was G.I. Joe. There were these characters on the G.I. Joe cartoon. They were twins. And when one would get punched, the other one would feel it. That's, that's marriage. Right? We, we feel the pain of our spouse. So to think, well, she's going through that. No, that's not how it is. We are going through this. That's always how it is. Remember, Paul was not given an explanation for his thorn. He asked the Lord. The Lord says, nope, it's not yours to know. He understood, and we must understand that that privilege is not ours to know. We're built to want answers right now. We're built to want results right now. And the fact is, we don't always get answers right now. Do you trust the master? Do you trust the judge of the universe to do justly? That's the question. The Lord has his purposes, and we have to rest graciously in his care. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying you're not going to have difficult moments. But that's where you've got to get to. That's the rest you've got to find. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, again, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Harvey puts it this way, grace comes to those who redirect their attention from what God denies, an immediately discernible purpose, to what God supplies, a firm promise. The promise, that's what we live in, the covenant faithfulness of our God, that he has made promises and we trust in those promises. Third thing I put is it makes us, makes us humble. Uh, thorns destroy what Harvey calls our three selves, self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-sufficiency. I mean, we're good Americans after all, right? We got an American work ethic. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't need no help, right? This is what we do. This is how it's done. We've, that's self-sufficiency. Now, I'm not saying you don't work hard. I'm not saying you don't pour your talents into what you've got going on. But if we live in that world, we'll fall. We'll do things in our own strength. And you can do things in your own strength for periods of time. 
You know, if you talk, if you deal with somebody who's an alcoholic, got a lot of experience in my family with that, they can stop for a while, you know? They'll go to some classes, they'll go to rehab, they'll do those things, and maybe it's a month, maybe it's a year, maybe it's five years. But in their own strength, eventually that fails. And they go back to where they were going before. It brings us contentment. Now, I think that's one you go, wait a second, thorns don't bring me contentment. Yeah, well, that's the promise of the word. In 2 Corinthians 12.10, we just read it. Therefore, Paul says, I am well content with weaknesses. I'm content with what the Lord has given me. He's also content, imagine this, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Why? For Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. Now, you talk about this a lot, but it's, you know, there is this kind of general Christian message out there in pop culture Christianity that, well, if you're in a low place, God's, God's preparing you for something else. Well, maybe, or maybe you're just stupid. Maybe your sin has brought you to that place, and you've got to deal with the sin that's there. I, I mean, let, let's make sure we're looking at, at situations where Paul says, I'm, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, and persecutions and difficulties if it's for Christ's sake. If it's because I'm being an idiot, it ain't worth it. But if it's for Christ's sake, if, that's what, if God has a purpose for me in this, then I'm going to trust him in this. I'm content with that. That's, that's a maturity that is really hard to reach, even for the believer. However, the fact of the matter is that thorns have been the straw that broke the camel's back in many marriages. We all know couples who, for one of the trials that I listed earlier, or perhaps another difficult situation, decided to end their marriage. So how can I stand here and say that the thorns and the trials are ultimately beneficial? There you go, and that's easy to say. You're up there. You got this personal, uh, this PowerPoint slide. You got all this stuff. How can you say that these trials are ultimately beneficial? This is how I can say it. This, that's the only reason I can say it. Because if I come in without divine truth and say, oh, it's going to be okay, that's about the last thing you want to hear sometimes. That, that comes across very patronizing. No, but what if I can talk to you about the, the covenant faithfulness of God? What if I can talk to you about the promises of God? That's where we need to live. And because I believe everything that's in this book. And if you're in Christ, you should too. Maybe I should rephrase that. You must. <laughs> that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't observe a faith of our own design. We don't serve as our own witness in marriage. Why do we do marriages before the church? Number one, we are married before God. And number two, we are married before a body of believers who are holding us accountable to the covenant that we've just vowed to stay faithful to. That's why we do it. That's why we do baptisms in front of the local church before God and before his church. That's what we should be doing. Our marriages were designed and blessed by our God, so what he has to say about it is pretty important. In fact, he chose it as the illustration for the relationship between Christ and the church. How big a deal is that? Let's go to another verse. What should we see in our marriages? Well, how about the fruit of the Spirit? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Anybody good at keeping every single one of those at the same time? All of us would say that we have a desire to do these things. We we want to embody these things. We want our life, our conversation, everything we do to represent these things. But 
let's think about this. Let's think about the illustration of the fruit. When you plant the tree, is the fruit ready the next day? This is a time-consuming thing. And by the way, while you plant that tree and while you wait for it to grow, seasons pass, weather comes in, insects show up. This is a process. There is a ripening process and no tree, you know, you ever go out and find, find one of those trees? Well, you know, I don't know anything about trees. Um, <laughs> with some kind of fruit on it. Pick your favorite one, okay? Biggest one you've ever seen. Well, th- that tree has been through all the trials to produce the fruit. Adversity is what helps us produce fruit. These things don't happen without trials, without perseverance. To develop and apply Christ-like love you have to be challenged to love somebody that's unlovable. To experience true joy, I think you have to understand what true loss is. How do you develop patience? (laughs) By persevering through a time when it seemed like the challenge you were dealing with wouldn't end. I think about, you know, one of the things we pray almost flippantly, we pray for wisdom. Do you know what James says, how you get wisdom? (laughs) by persevering through things, by experiencing things. So next time you pray for wisdom, understand that you're probably praying for some challenging situations to come into your life because that's how we become wise. That's how God works. However, when we, what do we do? What's our default position? We like to shrink from adversity. We would rather run from adversity. And in fact, we often do one of two things. We chalk it up to God's dissatisfaction with us, as if perhaps he's judging us, or we blame God for being unfair. Why me? We get into that mindset. We allow our flesh to shut down our faith. We allow what's in front of us to impact what's spiritual. And again, I'm not saying I haven't done that myself. That's that's what we fall into, but that's what we're fighting against. So, so why? why? Why do we need to do this? And what do we need to do? Well, let's go back to Scripture, James 1-2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Romans 5-3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Let's be very honest when we read these verses. We believe them. You know, we read them and we go, yeah, word of God, can rejoice in trials. But we don't really, not when the rubber meets the road. We don't go through trials and our immediate thought is, oh, great, all right, the Lord's doing something here. We don't. That's just, that's just being honest with what we're carrying in flesh. Endure trials, sure, but rejoice in trials? Come on, guys, what are you talking about? How am I supposed to rejoice in a trial? Well, I think we have to understand, especially within our most important earthly relationship, our marriage, that it's not the trial that produces joy. It's the results that God has promised. That's where the joy comes from, not from the suffering. A, a, a good practice when it comes to Scripture is to keep reading. <laughs> it's very simple. But let's do it in both of those verses. Consider it all joy, James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Doesn't everybody want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Yeah, I want that. Well, God says what the path is right here. Paul says, exult in your tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. So God is not asking us to rejoice at a major sickness. Don't misunderstand the verse. All right, 
My loved one has cancer. No, we don't rejoice in that. We don't rejoice when our spouse suffers. We don't rejoice when our child suffers. God is not asking you to celebrate when you lose a job. That's not what he's asking us to do. The truth is, if you're focused on your circumstances, joy is impossible. If we live via our circumstances, if we live via our emotions on a day-to-day basis, you will not find joy there because we are fault-finding people and we will find fault in whatever is going on there. But if you focus on the one who made you, the one who redeemed you, that's where faith grows. That's where joy comes from. He tells us to rejoice because we need to know that he's in control of these things. If God isn't sovereign, this world is miserable. That means our trials mean nothing. That means our difficulties are meaningless. They're arbitrary whims of some cosmic force. No, we have a sovereign God who directs these things to us for our good. And that's not easy to understand when it's happening. That's not easy to understand in the middle of the storm. But that's where joy is. Not in what's happening, but in who is, control, who is controlling what's happening. That we believe that he is at work in all of these situations and, and he's in, in, in and through them for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Men fail, our Lord never does. And, and I know there are days where it's easier to believe that than others. But I'm telling you that's the truth. And I'm not telling you. The Lord is telling you that that's the truth. Horatius Bonar, worst beard in theological history. Um, this is what he said. He who is carrying it on is not one who can be baffled and forced to give up his own design. Speaking of God here quite obviously. He is able to carry it out in the unlikeliest of circumstances and against the most resolute resistance. Everything must give way before him. We rejoice because we know our God cannot be frustrated. He must succeed. It's not that he wins most of the time. He wins every time. That's who wins. It's not love wins, it's God wins. That's the idea. When we face these trials together in marriage, and and. Anyone in the room, I'm sure we could go around and share some testimonies here, that you, you went through a trial together, and it was rough. It was tough in the middle of it, but you came out the other side, and your marriage was stronger. That's, that's the design. That's the design if our, if our focus is where it should be. So when we face trials together, it creates intimate fellowship. I just consider this. How does the secular world often deal with with trauma and sin? There's a support group out there for every vice. Whatever anonymous, it exists. Why? Well, maybe because misery loves company, but I think it's because common ground fosters a bond. That, That if I can find someone who has gone through what I went through, then we can we can connect on some level. I mean, we get, we get that even with simple things like maybe we grew up in the same city or we root for the same sports team. All of a sudden, we're buddies. If we have common ground, we can find it. Well, how much more within a marriage? That's not just somebody that went through it. This is somebody that went through it with you, arm in arm. We fought the battles. We can see our scars. We know what happened. So a trial arises in marriage, 
and, and, and we bathe it in grace in the gospel, and that should bring a married couple closer together. That's, the, that's God des, God's design. Now, I'm not painting a pie-in-the-sky image. I don't, I don't want to think, oh, it's all rosy, and this is just so easy to achieve. And, and there won't be moments when, when we have disagreement. There won't be moments when emotions get the best of us. It, that, that happens. But ultimately, if both parties are pursuing Christ, if both parties are pursuing Christ's glory, first and foremost, the bonds of that marriage will be strengthened. That, that, that's the whole key. You know, we, again, we talk in premarital counseling about um, the idea of submission, right, within a marriage. And boy, if there's not a dirty word in 2022 in America, it's submission, right? And, and we talk about that, and we, the whole, you want to solve that submission problem real quick? is if you have a husband pursuing Christ and a wife pursuing Christ, that wife doesn't have to get up every morning and go, oh, i got to submit to this joker again today. <laughs> it's not what happens. It's, this is what it is. We are on the same path. We are on the same mission. We are united. We are pursuing Christ. Now, I'm not saying that's sinlessness. I'm not saying we're never going to have an argument. I'm not saying we're never going to have a disagreement. But if we know we're running the same race, I mean, that's why the, the Bible makes such a big deal about don't be unequally yoked. Because you can't be running this way and your spouse running this way and you think you're going to be united on anything. It's just not going to work. If two people are pursuing Christ, that creates a bond. That's strength. And I'll come back to that idea towards the end. Number two, I think it reveals our faith. It's very easy, like I said, to read those verses in James. Read Romans 5 and go, yeah, joy, endure through trials. It's a different thing when you're actually going through it. Your spouse sees your faith. That strengthens us. And I would say that happens both individually to the husband and the wife and collectively as a couple. I, you know, and, and when I say this, don't take proud out of context here as a sinful idea. But are you proud of your spouse when they stand for Christ? When their faith is on display? When he or she is growing in maturity? When they're walking with you arm in arm through life's difficulties? You know, you, th- there are situations that we run into in our marriages and we go, man, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I know I said for better or for worse, for sickness and health, but this is, this is I didn't expect this. That, that's, that's where we live, but we can't stay there. We are walking arm in arm through this life for Christ. I know the expression of our love is an, is an ever-changing thing in marriage. As the years go by, it matures. It, it changes in the way, perhaps, that we express our love. But the more we walk together, the more we suffer together, the more we pray together, the more we overcome sin in Christ together, the stronger our marriage will be. Number three, it empowers us as one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. Two who have become one flesh. That's how the Bible describes your marriage union. Two have become one. Two spouses, two parents, two followers of Christ, on the same page, running the same race, worshiping the same Savior. That's so simple, but it's so powerful. That's what marriage is in Christ. You'll see it in each other. Your kids will see it. Your grandkids will see it. The world will see it. That's a testimony. That's a testimony. And make no mistake, they're watching. Number four, it prepares us for future battles. If we can get through, insert trial here, we can get through anything by the grace of God. The Lord builds perseverance into us through forcing us to persevere. How do you become good at something? Practice, practice, practice. Now, you know, people will say practice makes perfect. Well, practice makes permanent. <laughs> so make sure you're practicing the right thing. We can practice poorly and, you know, 
I, I remember I had a kid when I was still coaching, and uh, he, would, he, was a, he thought he was a shooter. Um, <laughs> and he had the goofiest jump shot I've ever seen in my life. I mean, his arms crossed, he, the ball spun like sideways, but it went in sometimes. And there was one game where he was just off, couldn't hit the side of a barn, right? And he came over and he said, Coach, what am I doing wrong? I said, well, I don't even know where to start <laughs> in fixing that shot. Like, it's so, it's so weird. You've practiced this for so long that, yeah, it works sometimes, but I don't even know how to fix it because you're doing something entirely different than what I've learned about this game. You know, I, I, you're playing a different game. You know, this is chess and checkers. I thought we were doing the same thing. We're not, okay? That, that this practice is that it's the only way we learn. And it's not fun. Nobody likes the conditioning portion of athletics, right? You know, nobody got excited at the end of basketball practice when he said, all right, suicides, let's go get some training. Nobody likes that. But what got you into cardio shape? That's what it was. The difficulties, the tough things. And then finally, it glorifies our Lord. Again, if we share the same goal, and that goal is making much of Christ, the Lord will honor our thorns. And those thorns will make us more like our Savior. That's what he's promised. Back to our marriage. One of the theme scriptures that we selected at our wedding was from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Perhaps you're, again, running ahead of me. But the illustration of the threefold cord. Let me read it. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls... The one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who was alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I really, that, you know, it's this one and two, one and two, one and two. And then at the end of that, Solomon throws in, oh, but a threefold cord. Threefold cord, you know, two is good. But, oh, what about a threefold cord? I think the point of that is you're in this together. And even when the two of you feel alone, if you're in Christ, you're not alone. You have a threefold cord, even in the midst of trial. And you know what that third cord in the center of your rope is? It's Christ. It's Christ. We, we've talked for years now. It's how do married people do it without Christ? I, you know, and some get lucky and do. I, don't, I know luck's not a thing. Okay. Some, some are fortunate enough and you, you know, you know, this couple and they're, they're not believers and they've been together for these years and you go, that's, you know, I'm impressed. (laughs) You've persevered through some things, but in the trials, in things that really hurt, if Christ is not at the center, how do you hold your cords together? That threefold cord is so important. On my way in this morning, I, I usually turn on Spotify and listen to our little channel there, the songs that we sing here. And about the third song that came on this morning was, uh, was It Is Well. And then it was playing when I got up here this morning. So it must have been providential. That was the Lord just giving me a little, uh, little, you know, hey, that's the one to talk about. But the verse that came to mind was, uh, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. If that's not the centerpiece of you and your spouse in trials, I I don't know how you come out the other side. 
And I'll end with Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. So that third chord has a name, and it's Jesus. Jesus knows we are weak, and not just in this tertiary way. He sympathizes because he understands our weaknesses. Now, I think the key piece you want to grab here is he sympathizes. He doesn't empathize. He doesn't empathize. And and I'll tell you why. Because he didn't fall. (laughs) He didn't sin. He didn't experience what we have experienced. He triumphed over everything he experienced. This is how we have to look at it. Jesus has, has experienced every trial and tribulation that is subject to man, right? But oftentimes when we deal with trials, we deal with them three, four, five, six, seven, eight dozen times. Christ doesn't deal with them like that. He saw them, he conquered them, and he stands triumphant. And that's why he's the great high priest that we can trust. It's not as if he worked really hard and he figured it out and he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and now we have this great role model We've got this Michael Jordan of sorts who just worked harder than everybody else and became the greatest high priest there could be. No, that's not what happened. He was perfect, and he conquered every sin. So he doesn't empathize. He sympathizes. He knows what we're going through, and he's conquered it. And if he has conquered it, he can show us the way to conquer it. He will give us the way of escape because he knows every way of escape. He is our great high priest. He conquered all the temptations common to man, Who else would we turn to in our weakness? We turn to ourselves. (laughs) We turn to others. We turn to self-help books. We turn to all those things. And when all those things fail, we go, I guess I should pray about it. It's what we do. Prayer is our last resort. Prayer is that, that last lifeline out of the quicksand when it is absolutely the first thing we should be doing. We should be bathing these trials in prayer. Now, when we bathe those trials in prayer, that doesn't mean the trial goes away the next day. There's no prosperity gospel here. There's no name it and claim it stuff in this. Because if we trust God to be using those trials to make us more mature, to make us more like his son, then we will be. (laughs) That's what he's trying to accomplish. Who else would we build our marriages around except the one who invented it, the one who sanctified it, the one who tells us what it's supposed to look like? There's no joy found anywhere else. So, whatever that weakness is today, Christ has the answer for it. And it may not come this afternoon. It may not come next week. It may not come next year. I don't know. But I can tell you he's in it. I can tell you he's sovereign. I can tell you he's using it for your good and for his sake, for his glory, for the spread of his gospel, for the witness to family, friends, unsaved people, the world. Do we trust our God enough to accomplish that? That's where the joy comes from. That's where confidence comes from. That's where hope comes from. Because I know who we follow. It's not, it's not, well, we'll see how it works out. No, I, it doesn't matter how it works out. All I know is he will glorify himself through his people. And our job is to be obedient and believe and trust, even when it's hard. And if you do that, it'll be reflected in your marriage. And I don't know the state of everybody's marriages in here. They're all over the map. But I can tell you that's where your marriage needs to sit on, the rock of Christ, 
Whether you're in year one or year 50, that's where it needs to live. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminders of your grace, the impact of your gospel, the salvation that you've gifted us through your son. Lord, may Christ be the center of our marriages, especially when the trials come. Lord, strengthen us. Help us to persevere. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Give us strength when we have none. We come to you as the source of all truth and strength and wisdom, Lord. I pray that you would bestow that where it's needed today. Today, as people are suffering. Help us to be in prayer. Help us to bathe these things in grace, Lord. Help us to see marriage as you see it, as a blessed union that you you design that will glorify you that will glorify the gospel. Lord, be with us the rest of the morning in our worship. Bless the reading of your word, the singing of your word, the preaching of your word. May you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.